Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. This is the fifth episode of season four. Actually, no, it's season three. I wish it, I went that far with season four, but there's going to be a season four. And my guest today is the most followed guest that I have ever had. He has about 80,000 followers on Twitter, which is amazing and insane when you think about it. I hope at least a quarter of them will be listening to this. His name is Truth Raider. I guess he's American, but he lives in Turkey and works with different conferences and projects around the area. So hello, Mr. Truth Raider. Hey, how you doing today, Vlad? I'm okay. I'm talking to you and I'm excited. I'm happy to get back to doing this after longer than a week when I haven't recorded any podcast. Yeah, I heard you just got back from vacation. That's pretty cool, man. It's nice when you can have it. And I also went with my father, which is more exciting because you get to share the experience with somebody and get to have a common memory. But speaking of common memories, we're both into Bitcoin for some odd reason, which no coiners will never understand. And how did you first get into it? I'm not specifically interested when or what was the price of Bitcoin when you got in, but it's more about the reasons. What, what is the reason that made you get into it? I think uh, philosophically, and if you look just at the beginning, I'm, I'm a, a libertarian, so I'm, I'm kind of a free thinker. And what kind of got the evolution of it is back in the day, you probably, are, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 36. And so I remember the evolution of peer to peer, you know, you had things such as, um, when I was younger, you had BitTorrent and Napster and, and all these different, um, applications that you could send and receive files. And to me, that was at the time that was pretty revolutionary. You, you probably remember that. Um, and so the genesis of that, um, and the ability to transact, you know, globally, you know, that it was appealing to me. I, I didn't get into it until a few years ago, as far as actively trading Bitcoin and mining and all that other good stuff. Um, but I've definitely of the mindset of that evolution of peer to peer and just being able to share data. And then now to be able to share um, a monetary system, just like we did with sharing data with BitTorrent to me, it's just kind of like the next level up from the foundation that was set, you know, 20 years ago, essentially, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So it was mostly ideological. I think, and I'm still that way. I think mentally, I just, it just makes sense for a person that's libertarian minded, who's open, who thinks that, you know, we should be able to um, share information, share ideas, and also be able to share monetary policy, like without a, without a third party, you know, that, that that's kind of like the icing on the cake for a libertarian, <laughs> you know. Exactly. The way I see it. But sometimes I wonder why we don't have more left wingers into Bitcoin, because it appeals to this idea which Karl Marx wrote about back in the 19th century about the proletarians raising and taking over the elite class, the bourgeoisie. So. I, I think Bitcoin is more rev revolutionary than a lot of inventions that we have had. But at the same time, the leftists seem to be more trusting of the state 
which is very strange. So unless you're going to stumble upon some kind of anarchist who believes in the exact description of what Karl Marx described and wrote about, then it's very unlikely that they will be interested in Bitcoin at all. And they will present all the classical arguments about not being backed by government and having the kind of monetary policy which only favors the early entrants and the elites. And it's not, if they cannot handle it in the sense that they can influence with their ideology, the policy, then they're not going to be interested just because they are some kind of outrage culture, which is rooted in this idea of changing through their protest. But at the same time, you, you have these people who protested in front of Wall Street back in 2007, 2008. And there was the Occupy Wall Street movement, the one percent, the 99 percenters. And these people would be much more inclined to accept Bitcoin as a store of value, mean of exchange, and as sound money. But oftentimes, I think, why are they not embracing it? I don't know. And in, in, uh, I kind of, I think a lot of it, and this is what I think is going to change that. I agree with you 100%. But I think what's really going to change it is popular culture. Um, is where we're going to, we're going to see that. Like I remember um, one of the, my favorite bands growing up was uh, rage against the machine. And uh, they, they were, they had this, um, this counterculture type of attitude. That's very similar to, to Bitcoin. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, for example, um, the, a lot of what you just said applies to them. So one of their concerts, they did like a spontaneous concert. I, I, I remember this, like it was yesterday on wall street and they shut wall street down. (laughs) They had an impromptu uh, concert in New York and, and they had to shut the New York stock exchange down because of the, all the commotion they caused doing a a spontaneous concert out outside called sleep down on the fire. Um, and, uh, it was, it was pretty amazing, you know, to watch the power that popular culture has when it has a popular message is I think something that I think Bitcoin will naturally attract those type of people and those type of people will promote it. And then people will wake up to the fact that it's a social change agent. You know what I mean? They'll figure it out, I think. So I think that's what we're missing right now, you know, this space. Oh, so we need a rage against fiat or rage against the Fed? Yeah. You, you, well, uh, do you know Ron Paul? You probably follow Ron Paul from the States, sure. right? Yeah. So we need people like him. We need a, and Ron Paul, he, he's a, he backs Bitcoin now. He does um, all kinds of speaking engagements in the States. And he says, yeah, Bitcoin is a good idea. Like we need more people like him who have the intellectual and the social ability to change people's minds that sit on the, fan, the fence. You know, like, the, like you said, the no coiners. You know, we need people that, that are artists and professionals and to come out and say, hey, this is a better way of doing things, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I guess we have had advocates since day one, and some of the most capable ones have somehow switched to the scam coins, like Bitcoin Cash. But I I guess uh, as the space grows and we're going to see much more coverage in popular media, we're going to have many more skilled people, artists, and influencers will be promoting 
Bitcoin, just like I remember in 2017, we had Katy Perry posting a tweet of her nails and she had Bitcoin and a few other altcoins painted on her nails. And we also we, uh, have Gwyneth Pat Paltrow. Is that how you pronounce yeah. her name? Yeah. And yep. she is a Bitcoin advocate. I guess we have also had some celebrities who shilled ICOs, which turned out to be frauds. And they got investigated by the SEC. But that's still a step ahead. <coughs> We've got a, a guy, uh, you know, Gary Vee is the top marker probably on planet Earth. He's the number one sales and marketing guy around. And he just put out a tweet and an Instagram post. He said, they were asking him like, what are your thoughts on blockchain? His response was this. He's like, I bought a Bitcoin in 2014. I'm not a blockchain expert. What he's, what he's saying there is he's saying, I'm all in on Bitcoin. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, so so his, his whole point was like, I don't care about all the other noise going on around me. I'm paying attention to Bitcoin. So the more people out there that have that mindset, the, the stronger the, the Bitcoin community will be, I think. You know? At the same time, I, I think we should pay attention to the people who got in very early on and have a greater understanding of what Bitcoin is and have been around for longer than one bull or bear market cycle. Uh, sometimes we can get stuck into this idea that I, I guess by now it's not an unpopular opinion to say that Bitcoin will not go away. I guess a few years ago you could say that it's dead and nobody is going to keep on working on it over and over during market cycles. By now we know that mainstream institutions are interested and that's why we should revisit the works of those who are insane around 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014 and wrote some of the most interesting articles and have developed educational resources that are very useful and still very relevant because I guess Bitcoin hasn't changed much except for the SegWit upgrade and Lightning Network. It's pretty much the same principle. The other thing that, uh, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the kind of person like people have, I used to have a LinkedIn account, right? Um, and I deleted it because it, it frustrated me because I went on there and everybody on there said that they're a blockchain expert, like everybody's freaking profile. This was from last year. Remember when the, the big bull market happened, right? And everything was, everything was flying. I mean, prices were out of control, right? And everybody on, on LinkedIn put that they were a blockchain expert. And then you look at the date of their, uh, their profile date, you know, when they set up their account. They'd only been in it for three months, six months, a year. You know what I mean? And they're, they're claiming this expertise. And, I, and I'm agreeing with you. Like, the only experts out there are the, the coders, the, the, the cryptographic experts, the early adopters from back in the early days. These are the experts in Bitcoin. So all of the blockchain experts are piggybacking off of the success that Bitcoin has created, you know, by exposing this new market and this new idea. So I, I'm... I'm with you in the fact that we've got to ignore, ignore this, a lot of the noise of the people that, that are saying they're experts and focus on the people that actually are doing it and did it, you know, because they're, they're more of an example to us. So I, I agree with you 100% on that point, man. Do you have any favorite people who are developers or very influential people in this space? 
Um, Zabo, Nick Zabo is definitely a guy that I follow on Twitter. And I, every time he talks, I pay attention. Um, some of the other really, I, I love, I keep up with Charlie Schramm, obviously, because he's a, one of those early adopters and, and paid the price for the industry going to jail. I mean, the fact that he went to jail for something a trader did on his exchange uh, is crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, when have you ever seen a, an investment banker go to jail because somebody traded poorly under their company? It's never happened. You know, maybe, maybe once in a million times that an investment banker gets in trouble for somebody trading underneath them. And you know what I mean? Where they have no idea. So I think people like that are very, um, they're influential to me because it shows that, that we're up against a pretty, we're up against a pretty big wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> so there's a lot of people out there that I, I like, you know, I mean, I follow the lightning network a lot. Um, Blockstream. Do you follow the Blockstream uh, satellite company? They're pretty influential to me as well. I think some of the people who post on a daily basis and inspire me to shape my understanding of Bitcoin are Eric Lambroso, who is a developer and has been around the space of development for longer than Bitcoin has existed. So he has a lot of expertise in the field of open, open source projects, has worked on Linux projects before oh. Bitcoin came around. And he tends to have this ethical point of view in which he says that we wouldn't really need to settle our differences with money if we became more ethical and we had, I don't know, a, a more compassionate approach to one another as opposed to relying on a state or some kind of agency to tell us when we should be charitable and when we should help the other people. We should just develop this worldview and mindset in which we should make the world a better place in ways that are not Silicon Valley posts or taglines. And I also like Pierre Rochard. I think he is brilliant. He's one of the best advocates that we have in the space and a very talented developer who happens to have a background in accounting, which is insane when you think about it. You have an accountant who discovered Bitcoin and then started coding and then became one of the most famous people around. The amount of talent that you have in this space is just incredible. And I also people like Vladimir Vanderlan, who is the maintainer of the Bitcoin Core GitHub repository. And he's basically... He has replaced Gavin Andreessen. About yeah, Gavin, I was, Gavin Andreessen. I was going to say he's also a guy that, that is pretty inspiring. Yeah, yeah I, I guess he used to be much more relevant, but ever since he claimed that Craig Wright is Satoshi, something has changed with him, and he hasn't backed down from that point to apologize and try to get better. So there's something fishy in there. I think uh, I think Craig Wright is involved, but I don't think he has anything to do with the creation of Bitcoin. But I, I honestly, I think he is he is involved. Like uh, I think 
I think the guy, uh, Paul Leroy, I think he's uh, the guy that created Bitcoin. That's, that's who I, my money's on him. A guy named Paul Leroy. That's, I think it's that a be, or something. R O. Yeah, I'm probably I'm probably I'm probably butchering the name, but yeah, it's it's L O U I X Paul. Yeah, so maybe it's Larue. Yeah, I, I read that story, but it seems a little far fetched to me for the simple reason that Satoshi has spent at least one year. I'm not sure about the time span, but has spent a lot of time explaining to newbies how Bitcoin works. And basically yeah. talking to everybody who was, was on the forum during the first year. So it's incredible to think that a drug lord who probably had better stuff to do with his life would spend time answering all the questions and being so nice to everybody. Well, let me give a couple of the reasons why um, people think so. He... Uh, So his, this guy, his nickname was Solatoshi. That was his, uh, basically his handle, if you will. Um, he was a programmer with, it was an expert C++ programmer. He, he created two different encryption software programs. Um, let's see. Yeah, he was a gun dealer and he also worked as an informant, but And, and then also, you know, Craig Wright filed a bunch. Here's what I think happened, because Craig Wright and Calvin Ayers, they both are trying to crack the encryption that I, I think this guy um, created to, to hide his, um, basically, the, all the information, all of the stuff that, that this guy, I think, Paul Roy created is encrypted. And I think Craig Wright and Calvin Ayers are trying to get into it. Basically, that's my guess based on if this guy, and again, I have no idea. This is just all speculation, but this guy created something called TrueCrypt, um, and that's where he kept his, used to hide his, his uh, Bitcoin keys. Um, and so I think it's possible. If you, and he also created another encryption uh, software called Encryption for the Masses. It's another, so this guy was a cryptography Whoever Satoshi was, okay, was a cryptography expert. It was not Craig Wright, obviously, but it was a somebody who was an expert in, in the field. So it, it's improbable to believe anybody that comes out and says, I am Satoshi without having a background in coding, without having a background in encryption. And you know what I mean? So this guy fits the bill. And another reason why I think it's probably him. Bitcoin was created in 2008, nine-ish, right? But it really took a lot of stuff from BitTorrent, which came out like eight or nine years before that. This guy's been in jail since 2012. And he's been, he's been uh, locked up in, in uh, you know, like a high security prison for the last seven years. So people always say, you know, why hasn't um, Satoshi spent any of his Bitcoin? Why hasn't he transferred anything out of his wallet, Right. Well, it's because he's in fucking jail. That's my, that's my guess. If I had to guess who Satoshi was, I would say it's this dude and he's in jail and that's why none of the money's transferred. That, out of all the, the people that I've seen pitch that they were, I've heard the Hal Finney. People have said it was uh, Hal Finney, Nick Zabo. You know, I've seen that, um, that pitch. But I think this guy is the most probable because he has the background 
and the technical expertise to have done it. That's my guess, you know? Right, but when you let, get let's put it this way. If you're Craig Wright and you wanted to prove to people that you're Satoshi, but even the closest of your collaborators knew that you don't have the background and the expertise to claim that you're Satoshi, you'd at least want them to believe that you have physical access to the hard drives of Satoshi. So at some point in the future, you'll be cracking the cryptography and access the coins that Satoshi holds in order to spend or do whatever with the coins of Satoshi. So he would be Satoshi maybe if he had access to... I, I mean, he would prove to some people that he has access to the coins and he can spend a few of them. And I guess that would be proof. But if you don't have the expertise, you want people to at least believe that you have access to the devices and within a reasonable amount of time, you would be able to crack down the cryptography. But I don't think that he holds possession, he and Calvin. I, I think that this whole LaRue story was made up by them to make you believe that they are much more involved than they actually are. And as far as I was able to read, and it might be a biased research, Craig Wright hasn't gotten involved in Bitcoin until 2014. Um, well, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying anything credible about Paul. There's the, that's the problem I think we run into, um, in this whole situation, right? So you got two competing stories. Let's assume you're correct just for argument's sake. And let's say Craig Wright has no access to the hard drives. Okay. Sounds good. That still doesn't mean that LaRue or whatever his name is, didn't do it. That still doesn't mean he didn't create Bitcoin. It just means that Craig Wright doesn't have access to the hard drives. That's, that's all that exactly. means. So, so there, I, I don't think they're, they're competing stories. Or the other side of that, maybe Calvin Ayers did get access to the hard drives and is working with uh, Craig Wright to crack the encryption so that way they can prove, even though it's not true, that they are Satoshi instead of LaRue. Maybe that's, you know, that's, that's a more, it's more probable, that scenario is more probable than, um, than Craig Wright being, there's no way Craig Wright Satoshi, but I don't think those two stories are competing against each other or have to compete against each other. You know, I think they can, one cannot be true and one can, can be true. So um, the point is someone with the technical expertise to create Bitcoin, you have to look at their background and see if they meet the bill to somebody that could do it. And LaRue has the background to have done it with or without Craig Wright his name even coming up. He could have done it. I think I mean, according to the same principle, you can say that David Chom could be Satoshi because he has been well, in rogue mode for about two decades. And back in the 70s and 80s, he basically outlined the ideas of Bitcoin. Who would you say? David Chom. David Chom, yeah. Um, well, that, and, and that's part of the reason, yeah, and that's part of the reason why um, Nick Zabo, people think that uh, Nick Zabo could have done it too, because he, he also created early versions of Bitcoin. So, I mean, I, again, I'm not saying that it was him. I'm saying that if we're looking for candidates, the first place to stop is somebody that could physically do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you have to look at what have these people written about in the past? So, so it's not only that. It's not only just because... 
somebody could say, come on here and, and argue differently to me and say, that's bullshit. There's thousands of coders and developers and all this. They could have done it. You're right. There are thousands of them. That, that is 100% accurate. However, if you look at the background of the work that they did prior to getting in to, Bit, to the creation of Bitcoin, if you look at the background and then look at what Bitcoin is, and if you can draw similarities between the two, you may, you may have either found the guy who created it or at a minimum, you found the inspiration you know, at the lowest end. That's that's all I'm saying is uh, if anybody comes out saying they're 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 the creator of Bitcoin, you've got to produce more than just uh, I created it like Craig Wright does does because he's an idiot. He doesn't know anything, you know. Well, I'm not going to make any claims about him other than I don't believe that he's Satoshi. He hasn't managed to convince me. That's all. Um, I don't want to get sued or anything, but. My money uh, no. in regards to the identity of Satoshi, which I guess is the greatest of mysteries when you first get into Bitcoin, is that it was probably Nick Saber working with Hal Finney. I've seen that argument too. And uh, I, I, in Zabel, the, the easiest reason to believe that's accurate is because um, of the whole big gold, you know, the precursor to Bitcoin. Um, it's the same, it's exactly the same thing as Bitcoin with a different name. I mean, you can find (laughs) (laughs) brilliant cryptographers and programmers and developers who work on projects, but it's hard to find somebody who understands money better than he does and understands game theory and human evolution. And there's a lot more to Bitcoin than just pure encryption. No, I agree. And, and Nick Zabo, I think... The, those are the two biggest con, uh, candidates. I mean, like, Big Gold came out in 1998. You know, I mean, it predates uh, what was BitTorrent. BitTorrent was like, no, BitTorrent was 2000, right? Was it 2000? I, I guess can't that, remember that's came. when we started using it. I'm not sure when the protocol was actually developed. Yeah, so Zabo came out with Big Gold in 98. BitTorrent was probably came out in somewhere around that same time. And I'm not sure, um, what's his name? Bram Cohen, who's the one that created BitTorrent. He's also brilliant. Um, but so they came out around the same time. And if you look at Bitcoin, it's very similar in principle, or it takes similar principles from BitTorrent. So all of these smart crypto, um, um, cypherpunks are working on this shit around the same time. So Zabo is a good candidate. I, I won't disagree with you on that. I won't. I mean, I'm not going to disagree. I I think, I think that those two, the guy I mentioned, Paul Rue, and and I would agree, Zabo's probably up there. Those two are, uh, they both were physically able to do it, and they both have the skills to have created it, and they were working in that sphere at that time. Um, I I I think uh, Zabo. The reason why Zabo is very easy to believe is if you took do a side by side. Of, of, of the principles of Bitcoin and Big Gold, they're exactly the same. There's no differences. It's literally like he just copied and pasted it and gave it a new name and identity and then said, it's not mine. I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, like, that's how it looks on the outside in, looking in. Well, even though it turns out, it may turn out to be LaRue or somebody else, I think that Nick Sabo has done much more for Bitcoin than 
Satoshi himself, as he has promoted it and has given everybody a better understanding of how it works and why it's a good form of money. Even after Satoshi went away. So yeah. my money is on Sabo, even if he did not develop like the Satoshi version of Bitcoin. He has pretty much outlined 90% of what Bitcoin is. And then even if it's not his invention, he came back later and was not adversarial to the development. He saw the good sides of it. He wanted it to be preserved. He did not want scaling with big, big blocks because he understood maybe better than most people that Bitcoin is supposed to be decentralized in the sense that each user is supposed to run his own node. And up until this moment, he reminds everybody that trusted third parties are security holes, which is good advice even when you're dealing with entities that are 100% legal and established by the government and guaranteed to work according to your interests, at least on paper. Yeah, I mean, I think you're so. Out of all the research you've done, you you think you think Zabo is the guy, huh? That that's your that's what you'd go with. I I don't even care as much. He might have not been, but at the same time, yeah. I know that he has done so much that he is my Satoshi. Yeah, I got. I understand what you're saying. He's he's taken it past. Uh, con- even if he didn't do it, he's he's moved past concept and into implementation. And he's actually helping build something. So, uh, yeah. I don't think he is coding right now. And I know that he was also involved in the creation of Ethereum, as he is also the creator of smart contracts. And he was involved in the early days and advised Vitalik on what to do. He doesn't like Vitalik anymore. They had some kind of ideological differences, as Vitalik tends to be much more leftist and likes Karl Marx, whereas... Nick Sabo is actually the son of a revolutionary from Hungary who fought the communists. So there is no way for him personally and intellectually to agree with left-wingers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, there's not a lot of, uh, it's hard to find a lot of information on him, on Nick Szabo, you know, on the, on, on the personal level. He doesn't like to talk about himself. He doesn't post any kind of information about himself, but he likes it when people share his work. So I I guess that's his legacy to the world. It's not some kind of Instagram picture where he talks about his, his summer holidays and the fun he had. It's all about the work that he has done. When you share an article by him and you tag him on Twitter, most of the times he likes it and retweets it because he thinks that this is the highest kind of esteem that you can present to him. It's not about praising him in the sense that you say, oh, you're such a brilliant person and you might be Satoshi. It's about understanding that at some point, maybe in the 90s or later, he wrote something which is still relevant today. And that's the highest kind of praise that anyone can get to be contemporary, no matter how the political and social landscape changes. I guess He's, 50 years from I've, now, 100 years from now, maybe that Saba will be just like 
modern philosophers, maybe like Foucault, Heidegger, yeah. and all the others. I think you're right. Yeah, because he's a people like him are true idealists. You know, they're they're they go beyond what they actually implement and they believe it. You know, so I I think you're right. He'll, he's he's probably in that generation of modern day crypto uh, philosophers. You know, like <laughs> like the code is the philosophy. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> code is law. Yeah, and he's also I mean, it, a lawyer. Yeah, it's 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 like a. It, it's like an art form now, like because if you look, if we look back in history at the different of the different arts, you know, like a um, hundred years ago, there was no such thing as a cryptographer. <laughs> you know, now it's like magic. It's like it's like modern day magic. You know, the, the ability to to do what you can do with computing, and they're talking about uh, quantum computing is a thing now. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's crazy how far uh, we're advancing. But so back to Zabo though, Zabo seems to kind of have a, a right-wing stance though, um, based on his Twitter. Like if, if I was, when I walk at his Twitter, it's very, uh, I think that explains it. Cause you just gave me some background cause he's Hungarian, right? Yeah. He said, he's so an American kind of citizen. I guess he was born in the USA, but he, I guess I, I thought about it in terms of why does he like Donald Trump? And I guess most of it, most of everything, he likes lack of predictability and anarchy because that's what favors Bitcoin. That's the kind of political environment which helps Bitcoin gain traction. If we were in this kind of political framework where it was all fixed and predictable and easy to understand for the average person, and there was not much outrage, then there wouldn't be as many social incentives to get interested in Bitcoin. It's uh, it definitely is interesting. He's it, it, it's kind of weird because his what he created is so counter what he's talking like his Twitter feed. I follow him on Twitter a lot. I, I read what he whatever he puts out or reposts, and this, he's got such a a, a right wing slant. Um, it's just, it's very interesting to, you know, when you look at the, uh, what Bitcoin is, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's, it, you would not think that that would be his slant, but it is. I mean, he's, he's, but then now you give me the background. He's a Hungarian. He's probably a nationalist of some sort. Um, he's anti-communist. So it, he probably is echoing his, you know, past generations, that he, the way he was raised as well, like you said. You know? So uh, it's just interesting. It's, it's interesting that he was part of all of this, but he's got a, such a different stance than, because when you think of Bitcoin, if you go tell a, like you and I, we understand at least the basics of what Bitcoin's about. But let's say we walk down the street and you ask some random person, say, hey, I, uh, would you like to buy some Bitcoin or would you like to trade some Bitcoin for whatever you have or something? They're going to look at you and go, oh, this is a Silk Road guy. This is a dark web, you know, uh, hacker talking to me. You know what I mean? They have this, it has a totally different, um, view from someone that knows nothing about it. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I guess this is just part of the mainstream narrative. It was such a big deal back when the Silk Road was around and they promoted Bitcoin as this criminal coin, which people used to launder money or to buy drugs. But in recent years, I think it has changed mostly because Bitcoin isn't really private. 
Well, it just, it hasn't though. I'd, I would argue it hasn't changed. The, the public opinion is exactly the same. We just like in the U S like uh, five days ago, the treasure secretary of the United States said that Bitcoin is being used for criminals to conduct illegal activity and to do uh, money laundering. So the, 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 content, the, the understanding and the knowledge of, of why Bitcoin is so good for you know, society, it's at least in the United States. In the United States, it's misunderstood. You know, you're, you're from Europe. Um, Europeans tend to be more open-minded on, on things I've found, um, having lived there for a couple of years. But in the United States, there's a stigma on it. So I played poker, right, with 12 of my buddies. We had a poker game, all Americans, um, uh, a couple months ago. And there was 12 of us in the game. I was the only person out of 12 that knew anything about Bitcoin. One for 12. (laughs) One out of 12 people knew anything about it. These are some of my college buddies. So 11 out of 12 people couldn't even explain what it was. So we are not even close to coming to any form of adoption. I think we're at least five years out, maybe a decade out from actually reaching people at the uh, ideological level, you know, where people say Bitcoin is money. We're at least five years out, at least in the States. Maybe Europeans, you guys will move a lot faster, but we're five years out, I think. Well, I guess you mentioned the statement of the U.S. Secretary of Treasury. I think from his point of view, it makes a lot of sense to take down and take shots at whatever competes with your national currency because it's about his job. It's about the hegemony of his country around the world. As let's say that Venezuela decides overnight to not sell their petrol for dollars and uses Bitcoin. That's a huge shot at whatever political and economic power the United States has over the world. We agree that the U.S. dollar is the best of currencies right now. But if you discover Bitcoin and present its advantages over the U.S. dollar, then you're going to have people and nations switching and you're going to have a different kind of dynamics and the international relations and global perspective of American politics which is detrimental to the United States in many ways. And even though I like to believe that Bitcoin is the most American of financial inventions, because people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison would simply love it and see the revolutionary potential in it. Right now, what the United States has become is basically against everything that is free, in terms of finances, it's all about control and not much about giving others freedom. I mean, I would hope that, uh, I mean, my, my hope is that, is that, country, that every country on planet Earth, not just the United States, but I hope that every country says, hey, we have a national currency, but guess what? We're living in 2019. There's nothing wrong with having digital assets like a, a, a Bitcoin as being another form of payment. There's nothing competitive about it. You know, if, if the government says, hey, let's use Bitcoin, then they can tax in Bitcoin. They can, they can raise money in Bitcoin. They can do all kinds of projects, and, you know. And, and I think if, if, if they just say, hey, we're, we're all in, I think it, it'll be okay. I think the problem is they're fighting it so hard 
it's like with alcohol, right? In the 1930s, we had prohibition in the United States. You know, that's kind of like the American way. If something seems like too new or too like, um, you know, or too, uh, too bad or too extreme or whatever, if it's too of something, the United States finds a way to ban it. So we banned alcohol. And what happened? Everybody and their brother said, how do I get alcohol? <laughs> Every 16-year-old, 18-year-old tried to figure out how to drink alcohol because you couldn't get it. You had to get it illegally. So if Bitcoin, or if the government just says, like with marijuana, hey, let's just legalize Bitcoin and tax it, then everybody would, we would have it automatically. It would automatically be acceptable. You know, it'd be like, like I think the state of uh, Colorado accepts Bitcoin as a method of payment for fundraising for political candidates. You know, there's states out there that have said, yeah, we agree with that concept. Um, just like Colorado accepted pot, you can smoke pot in Colorado. And so if you tax it and you, and you create businesses off of the backs of Bitcoin and, and you create industries, you know, that's the right way to get adoption in Bitcoin. But I, I don't know. It's just right now the U.S. is kind of stuck in limbo. We're, we're going backwards right now, in my opinion, in some ways. I think it's natural for any political establishment to go backwards at some moments in history. But coming back to the idea of adoption, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the United States to allow its citizens to discover something better than its currency. And that's not just about the United States. Any nation state which issues its own currency will want to be protectionist and they will want to preserve the kind of system and the kind of establishment and class system which was developed over time. As you have no idea what's going to happen the moment when people have sound money, which may or may not be only existing on the internet, because now we see with the Blockstream satellite that we can transact even when we are offline and have no access or have been censored by our government. And I guess us as early adopters are basically the guinea pigs of this whole, the lab rats of this whole experiment, because we honestly don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how people on a very large scale will react to this kind of change, how we are going to change our understanding of money, how we are going to live as a society under low time preference, because right now economies rely on spending. You have an inflation rate, which is higher than the kind of interest you get from deposits in a bank, which means you are incentivized to either invest your money in companies or to spend it as fast as you can and dump it on the greater fool who's going to have it. And some people are going to store it without even knowing anything about inflation and without understanding what's going on. But that's how the system works. It, it's a large-scale Ponzi, which operates on the principle of the greater fool. When you're going to have something like Bitcoin, which has a limited supply and has rules that are predictable and cannot be changed, then what does that mean for governments? We don't know. What does that mean for the regular people? We have no idea. Well, the Bitcoin whales who own about hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin are they going to become much more charitable and understand what kind of role they have in the world? Or will they just huddle the coins and think that they're doing the world a favor by 
giving a greater value to every Satoshi. That's also something we don't know. So the kind of economy that we have right now is basically controlled by a government. And whenever somebody decides to hoard a lot of money, they can basically inflate the supply and reduce the value of the money that they're holding as a way of making them either give up on their wealth through taxation or donations or accept that the currency which they are holding is going to get debased, even though the smartest and wealthiest of people are not holding any kind of fiat. They have gold, they, they have real estate, and they have all these assets which the masses cannot really afford. So I arrived to this point after discussing the idea that we don't know what's going to happen. And I guess this experiment that we are conducting early on is going to be useful to the rest of the world as they're going to see how human nature responds to something which is truly deflationary. And some people will argue that it's the same as it was in the era of gold, like Seyfedin likes to say, that the 19th century was called La Belle Époque, meaning the beautiful epoch or era. But even with gold... Back in the Roman times, when they were holding gold coins, they would go to gatherings and their form of taxation was to cut the corner of a gold coin. And they would gather all the corners of the coins, melt them. And that was basically a form of rudimentary taxation. We have no idea how governments can function and operate in a world where they cannot take your money and you have to voluntarily give away any of your wealth. And I think uh, I agree. And, and that's what I like about Bitcoin is, is or being in Bitcoin right now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an, an early, early guy. I mean, I've only been in it for a few years, but even right now, like I said, like, you know, I'm, I'm with 12 of my friends and I'm the only guy that knows about it. Like we're, we're asking the questions that you're asking right now are things that nobody else is asking right now outside of our small community of a few million people, you know, cause I'd say there's probably, you know, there's probably under five, 10 million people that truly are, are engaged at any type of thought level on Bitcoin, maybe 5 million, 10 million in, on the planet that are thinking about the stuff that we're talking about. It's a small number of people. It's not, it's, it's not as, because here's, here's why I say that just because you open a Coinbase account and you buy a hundred dollars or $200 worth of Bitcoin, it doesn't mean you know anything about Bitcoin. Do you, do you know what I mean? Do you know right. what I'm saying? Like, so I think it's a, speculator. I, yeah. So I would say like, cause you know, you know how they always put out these statistics per country where they say, uh, 8% of Canadians own Bitcoin, you know, or, or they put out these bullshit stats or if you look at wallet addresses, right, they'll say there's this many Bitcoin wallet addresses that are active. They'll, they'll give out a statistic on it. I would argue, again, it means nothing. The amount of wallet addresses, the amount of uh, percentage of people that own Bitcoin, that means nothing. What really matters is that globally, people that are actually paying attention to what's going on are talking about it, are thinking about new ways to innovate, new ways to grow the industry, new ways to better humanity. Um, through Bitcoin adoption, not just, hey, there's now there's 20 million wallets. There was only 10 million last year. 
to me, that's just a complete bullshit way of looking at adoption. And it, and it misses the point, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, it, what do you think about it? another topic I was going to talk to you about that? Uh, so when it comes to Bitcoin research, what, what kind of drives you? Like, what do you, what do you look for? What do you, what are you into in the Bitcoin space? At core, I like to think that I am a political scientist, even though if you ask my professors, they're, they're going to be like, no, that, that guy's an idiot. Don't listen to him. I, I had high grades back in university, but now I don't agree with a lot of my professors who tend to be left-wingers and Keynesians. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm not saying you're uh, wrong. They're basically the scientists of the current establishment but they cannot think outside it. They re- refuse to acknowledge that there might be anything outside it. And I guess that's where I step in. Okay. So you're, oh, okay. So, okay. I got your stance. So that's good. Um, I, for me, like, cause I, I'm more into my, my thing is what I, what I like about Bitcoin. I, I don't, I'm not a day trader. I, I trade on Binance and a couple of other exchanges but so I do trading, but I'm not like a, I'm more of a swing trader, but the, uh, the core of what I like to do is study the tech and the, the advancements behind uh, Bitcoin. So I, I do reviews for all the Bitcoin hardware wallets that come out. I own most of them. And I, and I study the tech side of, of security. Um, and the, and the other, the, the thing I'm getting into now that I had never touched on in last year or the year before is I'm really big into Bitcoin mining um, technology. So, and advancing that space. So one of the things that I just learned about in the last, cause I'm a student, I feel like I'm a student. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like I'm a student of Bitcoin. So Do you know what I mean? We're all students. Yeah. Yeah. So th- I, if I had to say like what I am, I'm a student of, of Bitcoin and, and, and what it can bring to the world. So one of the, the, the studies that I've been doing lately is the fact that there's a way to advance Bitcoin at an industrial level that I never knew was physically possible. And it's through um, natural gas and oil um, byproducts, as well as electricity grid byproducts. And uh, what that is, is something that I never even knew about um, that I've just recently learned about. I'm, I'm working with a mining company right now and, and I'm learning about, some of the tech behind these things and in these energy companies that produce hydroelectricity and, and oil and natural gas and all this stuff, there's actually, you know, all of the cables and all of the, the electrical grid. I don't know if you know this, but they produce too much electricity. Did you know that? No, but they, I, I, I yeah. have heard about the Chinese mining and it's not that it relies on water wheels, which produce much more electricity than the population needs. And that's where some people have stepped in and invested in Bitcoin yeah. rigs. So it's not just the mining rigs. It's, it's the fact that the electrical system throughout the world, all the electrical systems, all of the oil and natural gas refineries and processing places, all of these places, right? They have this problem where they are not able to get rid of like literally they it's like waste it's like imagine like the planet is full of garbage right and you have nowhere to put the garbage like all of these massive energy companies they have no place to put all of these energy byproducts so 
companies are starting to pop up. They figured this out. This is probably a trillion dollar industry that nobody even knew about 10 years ago because it didn't exist. There was no way to get rid of this energy. And so industrial scale Bitcoin mining of uh, energy byproducts is probably going to be the next wave um, that changes the landscape because the, the scale, like you said, China, the scale at which some of these countries are able to just say, oh, that's a smart idea. Bitcoin's now $50,000 you know, each. And I can do this by mining byproducts of my, my mines that are creating too much energy. You know, you know what I mean? Like the scale of that is unimaginable. It's a trillion dollar industry that hasn't even you know, really come out yet. And it's, it, it's going to be a massive boom for Bitcoin. Most people don't talk about it. They don't know about it. They don't see it. And it, it's happening right now. It's a, it's a third. I look at Bitcoin as an onion. And this is just another layer being peeled back on Bitcoin on how to advance the entire system. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. If it's about byproducts and stuff that gets thrown away and is a waste, then I think it's brilliant. But if you burn oil or gas or whatever kind of resource just to create... No, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's, it's excess. It's, it's waste. It's, 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 a, it's a... If you want to call it a green, you could even pitch it as a... It's a imagine you're producing too much of something and you're wasting it, right? That, the energy sector is wasting you know, what could be the equivalent of trillions of dollars of, of byproduct from the physical operations of all of these things. They're wasting it. And so because of that, they have free energy. It's essentially free energy. It costs nothing because these companies want to get rid of it. They want to, because they have to regulate all of these grids and, and electrical companies and all this stuff, they have to regulate how much energy they're producing. They're currently producing too much energy for consumers to physically use. So it makes sense to come up with a way to get rid of stuff that's, that's being wasted and, and improving the, the Bitcoin system. So it's like a twofer. You know, you're, you're, not, wasting, you're not wasting the, uh, the energy that, that the earth creates. You're not wasting it. And you're, you're using it to provide a, something good for the rest of us. So it's, I, I think ideologically, as long as it doesn't do what you're saying, which is create more waste, that, that would be bad. But if it's truly what they say it is, all the experts, if it's truly waste and truly a byproduct, then to me, it's brilliant. If it's true. And I'm not a scientist or anything, so I don't know. But that's what every, all the research I've read says that we are wasting trillions of dollars of energy production on planet earth. And if that's true, use it to mine Bitcoin. That's my argument. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. But so that's kind of the other thing that I'm really, I'm really interested on the tech side of, of Bitcoin. Like how can we, how can we take the, the planet that we've been given and make it better using this cryptographic technology and peer to peer technology that we've never had before at this scale, how can we use this to make life better for everybody? And I don't know a better system than Bitcoin. I, I don't, I, I'm looking for it. Where's it at? <laughs> it's not fiat. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still looking. I'm still waiting for something better to come out that is not Bitcoin 2.0 or some kind of fork and redesign. 
And so far we have been so unimaginative, I guess. It all comes back to the work of Satoshi. Yeah, it comes back to Satoshi. I mean, the, the only thing you could argue, there's one, I think there's one thing you could argue that will, I don't know that it will replace Bitcoin, but there's one technology that will, uh, it's kind of like superior in concept, but it's also terrifying as a libertarian. Um, it's a very terrifying concept because it, 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 Elon Musk talks about artificial intelligence and the dangers that it poses long-term as we get closer and closer to, to dehumanizing ourselves. So <laughs> the, unfortunately the next great leap past Bitcoin or, or it may even be parallel. Bitcoin may be parallel to advancements and advancements in computing and, and artificial intelligence I hope that they run parallel and that they work together to not dehumanize us too much. Cause my biggest fear is that as you move further in the Bitcoin space, um, companies are going to try to find ways to dehumanize Bitcoin. Cause right now it, it brings us closer together. I would argue, you know what I mean? I, I, I would argue Bitcoin is a, it's something that brings the world. It makes it smaller to where we can communicate closer to other people. Um, I mean, we're using satellites to communicate with Bitcoin now, you know? So my fear is that artificial intelligence was going to screw it all up, (laughs) to be honest. That's my biggest fear right now. I'm afraid of Skynet as presented in the Terminator movies, whether it's a big government which becomes totalitarian and decides that it's better for the entire world to obey to some kind of predetermined rules or some kind of corporation, which I like to think that corporations are byproducts of too much government meddling and intervention with the economy and contracts with the states and stuff like that. I guess that's how corporations are established. When you have the government favor a certain company and it gets to an undeserved and very... I don't know how I should call it. Not very competitive, but still measurable success. I mean, and that's I, I, the biggest, when you're talking about Skynet and whatnot, the, uh, my biggest fear is, again, Elon Musk is probably from the corporate, um, your mainstream billionaires and, and entrepreneurs and tech guys, Elon Musk is my biggest motiva- motivator from that side because he's, he's innovating. He's, he's building something bigger than, than, uh, than what's already out there. He's not making a new car. He's making a car that's better, that, that changes the way we do driving, right? Where it's eventually going to be automated driving. You won't even have to dr- have a steering wheel. But one of the things he's working on that I'm worried about, that I'm hoping that he does the right thing, is he's creating Skynet. It's called Starlink. It's got 12,000 satellites. There, it's going to be 40 times faster than the internet that we currently have. Um, he's creating it. So my biggest fear is that when he, when Starlink is completely up and running, I hope he uses it for the right reasons. <laughs> That's my biggest fear right now. But what are uh, these right reasons? Uh, well, I was hoping, or I'm not was, I hope that he 
he, in his mind, I hope he uses it like Blockstream, where Blockstream is is uh, helping to create, um, you know, spread Bitcoin adoption. I'm hoping that these 12,000 satellites he's putting up in space, I hope in the back of his head he's coming up with a way to to create a network for Bitcoin to, to fall in on. I hope he does that. He hasn't made any announcements that have anything to do with Bitcoin, but there's no better way than to create Bitcoin mass adoption to say, hey, guys, I've created the Internet times 40. And oh, by the way, um, Bitcoin transactions are going to be using lightning with my Starlinks. I mean, like if he if if Elon Musk says lightning is going to be part of the Starlink network, then I would say you're going in the right way. You're, you're not going in the Skynet direction. But um, I'm, he hasn't made any announcements on it. So I'm kind of fearful of that particular program that will be used for the wrong reasons and uh, for mass surveillance um, you know, and, and to cut away our privacy. Uh, that, that's my biggest fear with Starlink. But hopefully he, he does, it, does it the opposite way and, and finds a way to, to make it better. So I, I think there's lots of opportunity for people to make Bitcoin fix a lot of social problems. I just, I don't know if people have the, the guts to do it. That's the, really the question. You just made me think right now of Elon Musk and his project. And you, you have reminded me of a tweet that he made at some point in which he just wrote Ethereum. And then the next tweet was just kidding. I'm pretty <laughs> yeah. sure that he's very much aware of Bitcoin but he doesn't pr promote it for reasons that have to do with the fact that he's the CEO of a publicly traded company or more publicly traded companies than I can enumerate right now. So he yeah. has to maintain the kind of public image that favors the investors as opposed to his individual ideas that he might be having. Yeah, and they're all fiat. They're all fiat based because they own stocks and they used fiat to buy the stocks and options. And so he, I, I understand. I, I'm just saying though, like SpaceX is the company I'm talking about. Like, if if Elon Musk says, all he has to say is SpaceX is a Bitcoin company. You know, it's a Bitcoin supporting company, and then the technology that they're creating would incorporate Bitcoin into their model. But I think you're right. He's, he's, I think he's afraid to go all in and say that because if he does that, people will get fearful and he doesn't want to rock the stock price and, and all that other crap. So, but I think he has, I mean, can you imagine having 12,000 satellites in space that completely surround the world that transact faster than the internet that's currently on earth in order to do lightning Bitcoin transactions? I mean, it's unimaginable The, the, the amount of speed and, and the, the adoption that would happen if SpaceX says that's what we're doing. But he hasn't said that. So unfortunately, <laughs> there's a, maybe he's going to do it. Maybe he's just not telling anybody. Maybe that's part of the reason the satellites are going up. You, know, you don't know with Elon Musk. He's a wild card. <laughs> there's yeah. so much that we don't know. Just like I remember that Jack Dorsey got invited to the consensus conference in New York back in 2018 and nobody really had a clue what he was up to, but then he revealed all, all of the involvement of square into Bitcoin 
and cash yeah. app and i think it was last week that he gave away basically one bitcoin one full bitcoin with cash app and some people who maybe did not care much about bitcoin ended up receiving that amount and they're going to be under the obligation to at least understand how it works and learn about it and maybe you look at some charts and see, okay, so there's much more to this than selling it today for $10,000 or whatever. And hopefully this involvement of CEOs of big companies is going to lead to the kind of adoption for which we hope because so far we have had CEOs of Bitcoin companies who try to change Bitcoin for their own benefit and for reasons which only concern the profitability <coughs> and I mean the short-term or mid-term profit profitability of their companies. And I can think of people like Roger Veer with BitPay and Eric Voorhees with Shapeshift. I can see why they care about the fees and they want the customers to use the smallest fees possible to be able to transact, but they should not try to change Bitcoin according to their business needs just because they want to make more fiat. That's kind of dumb. I agree, I agree with you, man. Like I, I think uh, the problem we're having right now is all the billionaires are buying Bitcoin for themselves, but they're not pushing Bitcoin on their companies. So they're not exposing large groups of people to, the, to Bitcoin. They're just saying like, hey, I bought Bitcoin. So what happens when you do that is let's like you and I, again, it goes back to, we understand, but again, go back to the guy on the street that doesn't know anything. If they just hear a, a billionaire bought Bitcoin, they're going to think, Oh, so another rich guy just got richer. But if they're using the full weight and power of their corporation to influence a market that introduces <laughs> it, the Bitcoin to the entire industry. And that's what we haven't seen yet. Other than, like you said, with Jack Dorsey and cash app, he's starting to do that. But they're not like Jack Dorsey owns Twitter. He's got 400 million people that use his platform. If he incorporated Bitcoin into Twitter, just that alone, like if he says Twitter is a Bitcoin company, accepting company, if he just incorporated it into the platform, it would be game over, you know, because 400 million people would instantly say, oh, shit, this is a big deal or uh, Facebook or any other pick another social media platform. But they're not doing it yet. They're just buying it and hoarding it. <laughs> that's the problem. I don't you think know? Facebook is going to do it just because Mark Zuckerberg seems to be so bitter about the Winklevi. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean Facebook. I, you get my, I'm just using it as an example that if, if we get, we need people that are in heavy, you know, in, in major industries to push Bitcoin on their their demographic, whatever they make, they make airplanes, they make cars, whatever it is. Like there's a European airline. Um, one of the top European airlines is making a cryptocurrency exchange and they're also accepting Bitcoin. Now, this is a good example <laughs> of how we get mass adoption. Major companies say Bitcoin is currency, you know, and not only is it currency, we accept it. Once major corporations start doing that, it's game over. Bitcoin will be adopted because it's going to be treated the same way as cash or credit cards, you know? You know what I was thinking right now? We have basically gone from the mindset of 
2017 when it was all about tokenization and making sure that every little company has their own coin and currency for which they can offer discounts if you pay with that specific currency, which was usually an ERC-20 token. And that's why the price of Ethereum was so inflated. But we have gone from that to understanding that Bitcoin can actually scale through the Lightning Network and upcoming layers, because I have spoken to Giacomo Zucco and he told me that he's working on doing tokenization on top of Bitcoin with a third layer. And that's fascinating, the idea that a company like Apple can sell its shares and stocks on the third layer of Bitcoin. And basically you cash out your shares on the third layer and get some Satoshis on the second layer. And then maybe you want to transact them a little bit and then you settle on the main chain and you get Bitcoins. And, and I think what you just said, like you just made, it goes back to what my concept of if, if we look at Bitcoin like an onion, um, what you just said makes perfect sense. You're talking layers. You're talking about, you're talking about doing transactions automatically without the user knowing they're doing it. And you're just saying, hey, guys, just so guess what? You got stock. Sounds great. We have a way to layerize the system to where you can cash out some of your stocks and, and pick up Bitcoin. And, 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 and you don't even have to know how to do it. I'm just letting you know that you're going to get Bitcoin for this. You, you know, when it gets to that point, like, like imagine if you go to an investment broker and say, hey, I want Bitcoin. Okay. Or I want stocks. And, and it's automatically built into the system. It's part of the, the trading platform of whatever company. You know, the onion is peeled back, but you don't see anything but the onion. Then people are going to be using it and not even knowing they're using it. And that's what you just said is, is, a, is another example of how there's ways to use Bitcoin because everybody that I tell that I like Bitcoin or that are the Ethereum crowd or the, or the Tron or pick a different network, they all say that it's too expensive to use Bitcoin, right? That's the biggest argument against Bitcoin from uh, the crypto community. But the, that argument goes away with lightning. It goes away with uh, their side chains. There's ways to, to, to get rid of, this problem set um, it's that are being created right now, you know, which is the, the, the expensive aspect that that's the biggest argument people give against us is the cost, you know? Yeah. But also with lightning, I guess the problem when you run your own node, and this is part of the criticism is that you have to already own the amount that you're about to receive. So to have a channel, which is as large as the amount, that is about to be received. So unlike main-chain Bitcoin transactions, you can just download a wallet and receive funds and also run your own node. You basically have to own the amount that you will receive. So it's basically... So right now, the lightning scalability is basically microtransactions, if you will. It's, it's good for... It's good for uh, People like th- that are using Bitcoin, but you're trying to do microtransactions. It's not built for somebody that is new to Bitcoin, is what you're saying. You have to have you have to have the the satoshis available to back up the transaction. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So for people that are in the industry already, Lightning is super easy. But they definitely need to tackle that for people that are new. Because if you're going to go out and buy a car, that's like how are you going to do that? You know. 
So I, I see what you're saying. But for microtransactions, like, hey, I got my phone with me. I've got this app and I want to buy a Starbucks. I want to get a latte. That's perfectly doable under Lightning. Unless I'm misunderstanding what you're telling me as far as how the, the process works. No, it's perfectly reasonable what you're saying. And it makes a lot more sense than using, uh, I think also the Winklevoss twins have presented some kind of third-party service which allow you to buy coffee with Bitcoin without any kind of fees because they are the third parties which intermediate this process. And you can go and buy coffee at Starbucks without fees just because they are in the middle of this transaction. But it should not be like this. That's not how Bitcoin was designed. That's not the philosophy of the whole protocol. And if anything, we, we should aim to decentralize every process to the greatest extent that we can. And decentralization yeah. is much more than a buzzword. It's about empowering ourselves and taking away the power from the third parties. And well, it was not possible before the internet and before the peer-to-peer -peer networks. I think, and, and again, I'm a huge, I, I'm a huge fan of decentralization and all this great stuff. But um, and, and Bitcoin does that in its core right now. My my biggest thing I would say to all the really smart tech people that are brilliant developers and stuff who are complaining about decentralization. Here's my number one: as a libertarian, forget technology. Let's peel back the technology layer and say, look, technology is awesome, but here's the real deal. As a libertarian, what, I, what do I want? I want to be my own bank. I want to have financial, I want to have the, be able to store the money on my person and not have to ever use a bank ever again for the rest of my life. That is the libertarian in me telling the tech community what I want. And if Bitcoin or Lightning or side chains or multi-chain, whatever, whatever gets us to the point where um, we can say that statement and aff affirm, I am my own bank. To me, that is success. Um, if it has to be done through different layers and different networks or how, whatever it is, I honestly don't care. I just care that, that, that we go from a system of relying on central banking, um, fiat currency to a system where each human being on planet earth is in control of their own financial security. That is what, that is, that is the goal. That is the end state. Decentralization is just a tool in my opinion. That's my take on it. Well, of course, if you are able to identify any kind of ideological reasons to do anything, then it makes a lot of sense to go by the rules and, pursue these actions. And the beauty of Bitcoin in itself is that it allows you to be self-interested while functioning. So its growth as a network relies on people who only care about their own financial interest. And that's fine up to this point. It, greed works. Yeah, it, it does. But I mean, it, I, I agree with you. If we, if we look at Bitcoin... Uh, the foundations of why it was created. It wasn't created to make billionaires trillionaires. <laughs> it was created to help the little guy get out of poverty and, and help the little guy manage his own, his phone finances and, and help the little guy transact globally without having to rely on banking. 
You know, like at its core, um, Bitcoin's purpose, and, and this is where I hate, I hate the fact that Bitcoin cash and Bitcoin, I hate that, that the fact that there was a fight, you know, like, because it, it, it took something that was really good, which was Bitcoin. And it, it created this class system within Bitcoin where there's different ideological thought that are, that are more important than the whole purpose of Bitcoin's existence. And, and, and uh, Roger Vares has, is, I, I wish he would go back on the train of just adoption and stop pushing, you know, one is better than the other. That, that, that really drives me crazy, to be honest. I don't think he ever stopped promoting Bitcoin, even though he had his discourse focused on Bitcoin Cash and comparing it to Bitcoin and saying that, oh, this one has zero confirmation and bigger blocks, which means that it's not as secure, but that's not something that he'll ever admit, but is able to operate at a greater scale for commerce. But at the same time, BitPay, which is the company that he created and is the payments processor that has enabled many big companies to enter the space is accepting Bitcoin and that has never changed. And I think that he personally is well aware of the fact that Bitcoin Cash is a failed experiment and it has proven to the world that the idea of scaling through big blocks is not so great. But he's still making Bitcoins and even though yeah. you might see him as a villain or... No, I, I like Roger Ver. I, I'm saying I, I like him. I, I really do. I, I, I think he's great. Um, he was an early adopter. W what I'm saying, though, is I wish... He always says that Bitcoin Cash is the real Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. My point is, like, by doing that, he's, he's confusing people, you know? He's confusing people. And that's what I, ju I just don't like that aspect. I think he should focus back on on uh, the community and, and less on trying to pit one, one against each other. And I, that's all I'm saying. I wish he would refocus because <laughs> he's got a loud voice. People listen to him. When he talks, people listen, you know? Yeah. He has that kind of gift. I guess his first love was politics when he tried to run for office and he is good at it. He's a very good debater. He is very well read. And if you listen to some of his interviews, he might even recommend some readings, which is not something that a lot of people in the space do. And I remember in this regard, to contrast my previous statement that Kevin Pham told people back when he was still into BTC that he doesn't read books. And it's fine. And he has gone by with his life without actually reading He said he doesn't read books, he said? Kevin Pham. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, reader, he likes to brag about how he read even Das Kapital by Karl Marx and all the works of Keynes and also all the works of Austrian economists. And I guess most of them he had the chance to read while he was in jail. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Roger Ver, I, I like him. I, I, I don't get me wrong. I, I, I just, I feel like he can, uh, he could do a lot for the industry if he just refocused and, and supports the industry as a whole, you know, that's, yeah. that's my take on it. I don't know. He's still making a lot of money from this promotion of Bitcoin cash. 
And that's I get, my point. Yeah, he's he's all about the he's all about the money right now. He's all about the money, which is fine. I mean, he's he's doing well. He's talking about the industry. So, but um, dog and all, I guess just if you just knock off the dog and on Bitcoin, that'd be cool. <laughs> you know, just leave it alone. I suppose he has also lost a lot by supporting Bitcoin Cash too much, and he was overconfident at some point. Yeah. So I, I mean, hope but he's back to Bitcoin. Me too. I hope that he realizes at the end. I hope what here's what I really hope. I hope that as big as the rest of the world wakes up and, and Bitcoin gets adopted, I hope he comes full full circle and says, "Hey, Bitcoin Cash was a great." Um, it, it did what it was supposed to, but you know, in reality, Bitcoin is the real Bitcoin. That's what I want him to say that five years from now. I want that to come out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah. And before we started this, we started discussing, I sent you an article by Michael Goldstein on the Nakamoto Institute, and it's called Everyone's a Scammer. And if you skim through it, you're going to see that The basic idea behind the article is that everybody wants your Bitcoins and they're going to find all sorts of reasons to make you sell your Bitcoins. They're going to say, oh, but right now it's only worth $10,000 and it used to be $20,000. And according to my technical analysis, it's going down. So it's better to sell it to me right now before it goes down even further. And you're going to lose much more money. And according to... People like Goldstein, who have a low time preference and don't see any kind of currency qualities, maybe at this point in Bitcoin, and just want to hoard it like a store of value, then that's not a very rational move to ever sell or to invest in projects which promote the idea of implementing something else on a different protocol, which is similar to Bitcoin, but with something more. And at the time when he wrote it, I guess Ethereum was a big deal and the ICO was accepting Bitcoin as a form of donation. And it was the same since the days of MasterCoin, which was the first ICO ever, that they accepted your Bitcoin, they got rich, and then they under-delivered and the project shut down for some reason. At the end of the day, if you decided to hold all throughout the existence of the project, it was not Bitcoin. It was not better than Bitcoin. It may have had some qualities which provided slight improvements over the Bitcoin protocol, but it did not have the same network effect. It did not have the same kind of support from intellectual cypherpunks and cryptographers, scientists, developers, And there is also one other as aspect of Bitcoin which makes it unique and makes us realize that even if it goes to zero in price, you're still going to have the people who have been around since day one when it was worthless. And they believed in it not because they could sell their coins at some point in time and 100x their investment. It was all about the principle and what they could accomplish or, and what they can still accomplish with such an invention, which is impossible to confiscate. It is impossible to censor and maybe plays all the right chords for a libertarian who wants to listen to this tune about 
empowerment and sovereignty and individualism. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, that's the core of why, I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, if it goes to zero, let's say tomorrow Bitcoin went to zero, I, I still will hold the same beliefs I have today that I did when I started Bitcoin. <laughs> nothing, nothing for me philosophically will have changed. I was able to use a form of currency to transact internationally without anybody telling me I couldn't do it. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful statement. Even if, if you, even if you forget about a price, that's a powerful statement is to, cause there's nothing else on planet earth that does that. So it, it does, it pulls at the libertarian strings very strongly. I'm not going to lie. Exactly. And the people who have been red pilled are not ever going back. Even I guess if Bitcoin gets broken tomorrow and the cryptography proves to be no longer functional, we would still not get back to our old lives and accept the defeat because we know that it's too late for that. We can go to Monero, we can go to whatever project is still not broken and help improve it. I don't think Bitcoin is going to go away anytime soon because it managed to incorporate the greed of other traditional investors and governments are not really acting according to a greater long-term plan, at least not the democratic ones. And they act according to those who maybe finance the campaigns and have a strong lobby presence. And that's why the United States will probably never ban Bitcoin, even though maybe the CIA might get in at some point and say, this is terrible and it will undermine the national economy and the world power of the United States. You're still going to have the Wall Street investors want to see how they get much more US dollars or they accumulate more Bitcoin. And if we have learned anything from the lesson of modern American politics is that Wall Street dictates policy to a greater extent that, than we like to admit. And I guess that's why a lot of people are into it. The, uh, the good thing about the United States is we don't need the federal government to back Bitcoin. Like they could, they could never back it because we have um, the way that we're set up. Our government is under the constitution. We have the, the 10th amendment which essentially basically says that the state has the rights over the, over the federal government on the, to represent the people. So we don't need a federal proclamation that, that Bitcoin's legal or can be used as a national currency because at the state level, they have the ability by state to decide yay or nay. And it, it's kind of like a competition. So let's say a state, like a good example is Colorado. They, they love Bitcoin right now. Let's say Colorado says, hey, it's legal. We're going to tax in Bitcoin. We're going to make it to where you can use whatever you want. All the other states are going to follow, you know, because it's going to make financial sense. So let's say you're trying to budget your state budget and you're short $5 billion. And so you say, hey, why don't we make up this gap by letting in Bitcoin companies come in and, uh, and operate in the state and we tax them to help fix some of our budget gaps? It's going to happen. So the, that's the beauty of the states is I don't think 
I agree with you. I don't think at the federal level that the, it's going to get adopted anytime soon, if at all, ever. However, I think, and I predict that you'll start seeing over the next five to 10 years, you'll start seeing state by state, they're, they're going to slowly pick up different aspects of Bitcoin you know, um, adoption. And I think that's going to be the way it's going to happen is it's going to be slowly implemented by some of the more um, progressive states. And uh, I think the European Union will probably adopt it faster than we will. <laughs> to be I don't at the, so. at the f- They're trying to compete with the dollar, with their euro. Well, maybe it won't be Bitcoin, but I- I'm saying I think that they'll, uh, they'll try to figure out a way to, I don't know. I think they'll, it, maybe it won't be Bitcoin, but they're going to try to figure out a way to compete from a uh, currency perspective. Um, I think, I mean, it's looking a lot more, I mean, have, having lived in Europe and, and, and living over in this part of the world, it's moving a lot faster here than it is in the States. The, the governments throughout Europe are, are they, they seem to be liking it more than, I mean, you can just check just based on basic news coverage and then countries like Taiwan, Singapore, Japan, Korea, they're also moving pretty quick with respect to uh, Bitcoin, I would say. By the way, you mentioned that you live in Europe. What is it like to live on Bitcoin in there? Are you actually able to buy food and get some kind of accommodation? No, I'd say you can't. No, I would say you can't right now. I mean, uh, in in Istanbul, but in like, uh, yeah, you can't. I mean, here's, here's my criticism of Europe and, and, and different parts of the world right now is you have, um, for example, Malta, right? Uh, went to Malta last year and, and I'm going to go back in November. You got to make it easier for, they're called the blockchain Island, but if you, you got to make it easier for people to transact in the currency that you're letting people use, you know, and it's right now, I'm trying to think of the easiest place to transact in crypto and especially Bitcoin. And I don't know where, I don't know where it is. Maybe, I mean, I can't, you, you can use websites like Travala. It's a travel website that I, I believe takes Bitcoin for booking flights and hotels. Um, so it's possible from the internet. Do you know what I'm saying? To transact. But in, in the actual physical world, it's very difficult <laughs> right now. Um, and that's why I say we're five to 10 years out because people like you and I, we're, we're able to talk about Bitcoin very easily, but for the average person in Europe or the United States, they don't understand how to implement it into their daily life still. Is there any kind of ban on Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies taking place in turkey right now no i don't see any ban on bitcoin they uh there's a exchange called btc turk it's the largest one one of the largest ones here and uh they're able to buy and sell crypto and uh bitcoin so it's bitcoin's not a big deal that actually you want to the, the the funny thing is the big thing that's going on here and, and not just here but other parts of the world is uh, the mining aspect. A lot of people are using ant miners to mine Bitcoin. People just don't really talk about it as much, but Bitcoin mining is something that's pretty popular. 
So you're more likely to see somebody from Turkey mining Bitcoin than somebody that's transacting in Bitcoin. So that's kind of the different angle I would say there. A lot of, a lot of transactions, uh, a lot of mining going on. Okay. I know that Turkey is this authoritarian regime, which likes to pose as a democracy, but it's actually not. And you have President Erdogan, who basically promoted himself from the position of a minister and then became prime minister and now president and keeps on changing the laws. And there are lots of parties which are interested in removing him from power. But at the same time, you have a long history of Turkey being actually the Ottoman Empire and having the Sultan and being ran by the kind of government which does not grant civil liberties and does not provide any kind of democracy. Just like in Russia, actually, you have a longer history of authoritarian domination, which people seem to incline to like just because it turns them or at least feeds them this sense of being the world power. And yeah, I don't know. Man. This reflects to Bitcoin is interesting, actually, because sometimes they outright ban it and say our national currency is king and we are going to use it and you are supposed to use it. And if you get caught using anything else, be it dollar or Bitcoin, you're going to get thrown in jail or they can just embrace it. And understand that if they truly want to become a world power, they have to allow all the means that enable outside money to get invested in their country. I think, I think uh, every country is going through a cry. I, I would say to, to categorize at a bigger level um, or at the, the macro level of this is developing countries all around the world are struggling with this identity crisis of, How do I manage a national currency um, with the rise of Bitcoin and crypto? How do, how do I manage both? Because they see that, that, that some of the bigger countries uh, economically and technologically like Japan and Taiwan and Singapore, they're adopting Bitcoin, they're adopting crypto, they're implementing blockchain into com different companies. So they're, they're, the developing world's playing catch up, I guess is my, my overarching point is they don't understand Uh, Bitcoin, and they don't know how to catch up. All they know is that they see that Bitcoin is going to be a big deal. They see people mining it. They see people buying it. They see people trading it. They see billionaires talking about Bitcoin. So the developing world is watching very carefully. And uh, in places where there's no money, like Venezuela, for example, if you look at the, the purchase rates of people buying and opening wallets and, and purchasing Bitcoin in Venezuela, it's, it's astronomical. People are desperate to get out of problems, you know? So I think at the macro level, you're going to see the developing world trying to catch up at a faster pace than places like the States, Canada, and everywhere else, because they have to catch up, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And I guess when you live in a developed country, which grants you lots of advantages as compared to the rest of the world, you don't really think about the inflation with your money. I don't think many American citizens really care about the 2% per year inflation that they experience. To them, yeah. it's something normal. But when your inflation rate is within two or three or four digits, 
then that's a problem. And you're going to think about ways in which you can preserve your purchase power. And most importantly, you don't feel like you're working for nothing because people who save their money and realize the next month or within six months that they're not able to purchase what they have been saving for, then that's a big issue which they have to solve somehow. So the promise of a currency which might swing by 10% during a day, but maybe get back to its initial value is much more alluding than anything relating to a fiat currency of which they know that can only go down. I was in uh, Argentina in 2000 during the uh, collapse, economic collapse, when the currency basically broke. And, uh, and my friend, because I was there, I had a friend that was from Buenos Aires, and he, uh, his mom owned like vineyards and stuff. The government stopped everybody's ability to pull money. They had a bank run, and they, you couldn't take money out of the banks. It was all blocked, whether you had U.S. dollars or, or Venezuelan uh, US pesos. You know, nobody could take money out. So that, that was a huge wake-up call to me. You know, that's kind of, that's probably the early foundations of, of my libertarian leaning philosophy is because I couldn't believe that someone who owned money in a bank couldn't just go take it out, you know, and people were on the streets. They had this thing where I'm sure they do it in Europe too, is they'll get tens of thousands of people and they'll bang on pots. They'll take like pots and pants and they'll go out to the street and just bang on the pots in front of the banks. Um, and everybody's just like protesting. And, and I was there during that and it was an eye-opening experience to see how fast the, the Argentinian peso used to be one for one to the U S dollar. Now it's like 16 to one or something. It's, it's interesting to see over a process of 19 years, a, a currency and an economy just completely collapse in on itself because of really bad uh, fiat based regulations, you know? So it, it's, it just makes sense to be able to let the average citizen hold their own money because it just feels like the banks are always scheming and finding ways to, to rig the system to where at the end of the day, you're the, the person who has your money in a bank and you can't access it because the bank fucked up or the, you know, or whatever, you know, it's just, it's, it's amazing to watch in real time. These things happen essentially. It was the same in Greece during their financial crisis days when the bank ATMs were only allowing the citizens to withdraw about 10 euro every day to make sure that they can only have the kind of money that allows them to buy food, but nothing else. Can you imagine that though? Can you imagine uh, it's never happened in the United States where we've been told that you can't, you're only allowed to get $20 or $10 out of the bank and, to buy food. I mean, I, I can't imagine having to beg permission to do something like that. Like that's, um, but it's a reality in some places. Yeah. Like I think Uganda, doesn't Uganda have like, I think the Uganda and Venezuela probably have the two worst economies. I think I want to say on the, on the earth right now, but they also have some, but they have some of the highest adoption rates for Bitcoin. I mean, it, it, it just makes sense when you're, when your fiat is, is being crushed that people are going to look for ways to get out of it. Like, think about this. Do you know the inflation rate in Venezuela is like 10 million percent a year right now? 
and growing. It may be higher than 10 million percent now. If you Bitcoin dropped what 85%, 80%, I don't remember last year, but um, it dropped like let's say 85%. Imagine your inflation rates 10 million percent and you're buying Bitcoin when it's only uh, devalued 80% over the last year, you know, but your currency is 10 million percent. You're making money just by waking up every day. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just by waking up in the morning and, and putting $5 into your Bitcoin account, you're, you're providing yourself the ability to survive another day. Like most people on planet Earth can't imagine that scenario where that's your living condition. It's so bad that you're having to find an escape route because your currency is worth nothing, you know? But in all honesty, if you lived in Venezuela, the smarter thing to do would be to mine it. That'd be the best way. It's just to mine it. Because they have Venezuela. Here's the funny part, too. Venezuela is the cheapest place on planet Earth to mine Bitcoin is in Venezuela. They have the lowest electricity costs of any country on the planet to mine. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And they also have, I think it's like 40 or $50 trillion worth of oil underground there's physically no reason why venezuela should be broke <laughs> exactly but <laughs> no reason you can actually see the scale of world politics and how an embargo on trade can actually affect a nation because your resources are only worth as long as you can trade them if nobody wants to trade with you then you're going to have tons of oil buried underground while nobody wants to buy them from you which leads to poverty and leads to all sorts of ugly situations, which other world powers have basically orchestrated as a way of making the population rise against their government. I guess we all know the story of Richard Nixon trying to meddle with elections uh, in South uh, America. Yes, that was way before my time. I don't remember the... uh the specifics of it. It's a long time ago. Yeah, it was with Pinochet, was a socialist dictator, or he turned out to be a socialist dictator. But Richard Nixon was so against the idea of having socialist dictators around the time in the 70s that he and Henry Kissinger were very much involved in promoting, in financing the opposition, which was pro-American. And helping them even if it took to do assassinations or protests and this kind of social movements, which were basically funded by the U.S. government as a way of ensuring that the countries at the south of the continent were friendly and not on the side of Russia. But nowadays you have something similar, except that they allow the nation to starve as a leverage to make the dictators fall. Because in Venezuela, you had Hugo Chavez was one of the most popular political figures of his time because he was very generous, irrationally generous. If you're a Venezuelan citizen living abroad, you would receive a subsidy to your costs for heating and for electricity, just like somebody who was living inside the country. But it, it turned out to be wasteful. And when Hugo Chavez was gone, and now they have a different leader, 
I don't remember his name right now, but I'm not going to look it up. And you can do it yourself. I guess the politics of this specific individual who is basically the dictator of Venezuela were not as appealing to the United States. And Donald Trump, as the person who is in charge of foreign affairs within the United States, even though he has a secretary of state, his entire cabinet is not as friendly as the Obama cabinet. And they basically allowed the population to starve and they allowed for this huge inflation to happen, hoping that the regime would collapse and at some point the Americans will get back to doing what they do best, you know, spreading their businesses like McDonald's and Starbucks and doing their kind of economic colonialism, or I'm not sure how it should be called, but they do this and they're going to get back and the economy is going to recover under the kind of leadership that is friendly to the United States. And that's not something that only the United States does. If you live close to Russia, like Romania is, you'd have a long history of Russians trying to take over and stealing your resources and infiltrating within your politicians, trying to promote ideas that are friendly to the government in Moscow. So I guess that's how the big players operate on a greater scale. And this is also one of the reasons why you should be into Bitcoin, because you know that you're taking away this kind of power from big governments. And by big governments, I don't mean governments which have welfare, and have a lot of left-wing policies and a lot of state employment. I mean, the ones that are world powers and nobody can take away the status of theirs because they have atomic bombs. They have large military facilities with which no neighbors can compete. And basically they can dictate the policies within their area just by threatening or just by allowing economies to collapse around them. This is what's going on in Venezuela. I hope that 50 years from now, 100 years, whenever Bitcoin gets popular and becomes maybe the world reserve currency without any shadow of a doubt, we're going to be much fairer. And we are going to remember these times and say, just like it was in the case of slavery or other atrocious actions throughout the history of mankind. We're going to look back and say, back in the day, you could have a big state threatening another one with political means. And now we have Bitcoin and we are supposed to cooperate. We are supposed to function in a way that incentivizes everyone to be honest and to be a good player of this game. Otherwise, you have no other means. Well, except for wars, but... You, also, you will also need Bitcoins to go to work. And the distribution of Bitcoin around the world is still uncertain. You're never going to be sure who owns how much unless they disclose it. So yeah, it's an exciting world, which I hope will be so much better than the system we have and despise right now. And it takes dreamers like us to promote the idea of Bitcoin taking over the world to be able to even have it on a small scale and conduct experiments to see how communities react. Because I guess communism as an idea sounds very good to have equality among 
humans and an equal distribution of resources. But when you try it on a small scale, you realize that people are actually greedy and they want to have as much as possible. And you're going to have people who no longer find any reasons to be productive and to work just because they get everything through their very existence. And in the case of Bitcoin, it's the exact opposite. You are incentivized to work and be somebody and be greedy to accumulate, to trade with the others. I agree. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely incentivized. <laughs> I mean, there's an incentive to, to using, holding Bitcoin and promoting it. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a, but it's not a greedy system. I would say, I mean, the average person can't go out and buy a thousand Bitcoin. You know, most people strive to get what they can. Um, like, a, like my example of the developing world, you know, there, uh, people are buying Bitcoin and getting trading Bitcoin just to eat food. You know, like I, they can't, you can't do that with the Venezuelan peso. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't afford to physically buy Like they're on a totally different plane as you and I are. They, they physically can't get food with their national currency. Can you imagine that? That That's why I'm so like with you, I'm so idealistic about Bitcoin is it's not for people that live in America. Like in America, I'll be fine you know, as an American, but, but for a guy who's living in the developed world, this really is an escape route. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It really is to a better life. Yeah, I know because that's why I got into Bitcoin. When I realized that the money I was making when I first started making money was losing value month after month. And I, I started looking for investment opportunities and ideas and i first stumbled upon ethereum which is (laughs) crazy and it was a bad move on the long term but that's how i discovered bitcoin so in a way i'm not as adversarial to the idea of altcoins as other people might be because some of them even though they are bad investments they can teach you how to run a node how not not ethereum but others like i don't know litecoin but they teach you how to run a node how to work with a wallet how to secure your own keys and these are essential skills that you need when you get to bitcoin and you finally understand why it reigns supreme and there's nothing like it yet and if you route coins that's not really a big loss yep I agree, man, for sure. We definitely see pretty much the, the world fairly similar, <laughs> which is good. Yeah, that, that's why we do podcasts, I guess. There are like echo chambers for like-minded people. <laughs> and, and it also is good to see like people that live in different countries and uh, come with, the, you and I have different backgrounds, different nations we come from, but yet philosophically and ideologically, something brought people from different viewpoints to a similar understanding. So that, that's the other beauty of Bitcoin, I think. I can tell you that my grandparents had their wealth confiscated by the communists. And then there came the revolution of 1989. And my parents had their wedding around the time. And when they had the wedding, they received a lot of money, which was enough for them to buy a car. And they sent the first payment for the car. And due to the political instability, they were not able to get it. 
and they got their money back. But by the time they got the money back, the the money which they received was only enough to buy a couch for the living room. And that's what they did because they had no choice. They had to spend the money or else it would become even less valuable. And the 19... 19- and that's... Go on. That's a good example. No, that's a good example of why... Um, of of some of the reasons why people around the world are seeing the value in Bitcoin is is that that story right there is a it's a prime example of a wake up call, you know. What I find interesting right now is that my father doesn't get Bitcoin, and he tells me that I should not trust something that is not, you know, backed by anybody or anything other than hash cycles and electricity and the good willingness of some developers. But he is an old school economist and he only believes in what is tangible and has his own ways of evaluating what is valuable and what is not. I tried to present to him from this specific angle and I told him, you know, you had these experiences when you were young and you told me about them and I'm trying my best when I settle down and I start my own family to make the kind of financial decisions that are good and don't end up in this kind of terrible financial situation where the government fucks you up. And I I don't mean to swear, but in this particular situation, I cannot think of a better term than to swear because you had millions of people having expectations in regards to how they want to spend their money and they had bank deposits. And around the 90s, people were taking loans for huge amounts of money and returned them within one year because due to inflation, that was what their monthly wages were turning into. So if you wanted to buy real estate in the 90s, it was such a great time in Romania. My parents didn't do it because they got screwed the first time around and had to work really hard to get back on their feet and be be able to pay for a house and everything else. And right now I'm in the financial situation where if I want to buy a house for myself, I'll have to get a loan for about 20, 30 years. Wow. I have university classmates who have done it. And they said, okay, I'm going to settle here. I'm going to get a job and then work for 20 years to pay back for this apartment, which I bought for myself, even though they're not certain that they're going to live there for the rest of their lives or if the economy is stable enough to make this kind of commitment. Yeah. That's the, that's the other thing. I mean, you don't, with uh, homes, home loans and interest rates and it's all, it only helps the banks at the end of the day. That's the, that's the other thing with, you kind of realize is how much banks really get benefits from, from traditional finance, you know? And it kind of sucks. I think this system under which we operate is the best that we have had so far up to this point, but it can get better in so many ways. I can think of situation in my country where 200 years ago, you, you still had a system of social classes and noblemen and serfs and serfdom was still 
legal. And if you're born in a family of peasants, you basically had to grow up and harvest the land for the landlords. It wasn't even your property. But we have gotten to a point where you have to ask permission to the state for everything that you do. You want to buy a house? Well, you need these documents and you have to basically become a slave for 20 years to be able to own your own piece of land. And I guess in the future, we're going to get much fairer. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I'm not sure how much you have to work for a house in the United States or in Turkey. It's 20, 20 or 30 years, typically typically 30 years, but they do 15 and 30-year loans are the most popular. Was that 15 or 50? 15 or 30. Okay. One five or 30, yeah, are the most popular ones. I don't know. Some people like this kind of lifestyle where, where they know what they're going to do for the next 30 years of their lives, just working and paying the debt. I personally well, there, don't find any pleasure in that kind of living. There, I mean, there wasn't a lot of options. I mean, before, I mean, because in the States, they, they pitch, buy a house, um, get stocks, you know, traditional uh, investing you know, work for 30 years and then retire. That's, that's the, uh, that's the quote unquote American dream. So basically. If you put it like that, there's not much of a dream in it, but if you watch one of these movies about the American dream, you see them living in lavish, large houses with pools and nice cars and nice neighborhoods. Yeah, but I mean that's that's not as common. The most common is what I said. <laughs> I'm for, I mean, it, a lot of people are happy to just do that, just work for thirty years and then retire. I mean, a lot of people that's that's what they want. You know? How do you find Turkey and specifically in Istanbul as opposed to where you come from in the states? Oh, uh, it's good. I'm from uh, Washington State. Is where I'm from originally, West Coast the u.s but it's it's good i mean people are friendly good environment um it's a growth growth area though growth industry that's what i like about it there's a lot of room to grow here um not just istanbul but the region this entire region is very very positive for 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 bitcoin and crypto in general it's it's they're very eager everyone's very eager to learn here that's why not very many yeah, it's it's good. I mean, it's I think it was rated. I was rated either number two or three, I think, globally for um, for global interest for crypto. As far as uh, nations go, I think it's like second place or something. Which is not something that you can say about the United States, I guess. Where they are yeah, it's trying the, their best to outlaw or not outlaw, but make it so inconvenient to have any kind of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. They just tap just, the hell out of it. I don't think they're ever going to go after Bitcoin. Um, I think it's just the, the one, they were, it's getting a bad image. And then two, they're not going to outright say you can't buy it, but they're making it to where it seems like it's not a good investment. 
um, the, the, the news, the, the media, it's, um, if you're, I'm saying if you're a company, so like, let's say you want to start a company, it's, it's very easy to just go somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like if you had to decide, I'm going to make a Bitcoin trading company or whatever, pick, pick what an industry you're going to go to Canada instead because Canada is, is okay with Bitcoin. They don't have a problem with it. You're going to go somewhere besides the U S because there's no reason to go to the U S. So you, a lot of the talent is leaving town <laughs> and going abroad, you know? That's the issue. What is the media like in Turkey? It's the same, normal. We've got CNN here, and, and uh, we've got all the uh, BBCs pretty popular. I'd say the three most popular is probably BBC, uh, CNN, and uh, RT. Those are the three most popular. Um, the four, those are the foreign channels that I usually watch that are here. Okay. And here, Russia today is not very popular for obvious reasons that we don't like Russians. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm tracking that dynamic <laughs> for sure. But those are the three that are the most uh, reliable for kind of what's going on around the world. Usually watch them. But. Okay. So we have been talking for about two hours now. Do you have any last topic that you want to approach? No, I think we're good, man. I think I'm going to try to get some lunch and uh, it's, I think the topics we covered are good, man. It's, it's nice to hear different perspectives and learn some more about um, different ways we can grow the, the industry from someone else. That's why I love podcasts. It's just raw and it's just people engaging on what's going on. You know? Yeah. And none of this was scripted except for maybe sending you that article by Michael Goldstein. It was all spontaneous. And I, I have never, never spoken to you before. This is the first time we met. Yeah. Also, you, you should know that if we get any kind of donation and BTC for this particular episode, you're going to get 50% of it, or you can just send it to any kind of charity. And on my side, if I get that 50%, I'm going to send half of it to the defense of Ross Ulbricht. Not because uh, I don't think that he has committed crimes, which he obviously has, but I think that the punishment that he received is too harsh and nobody should be subjected to that kind of stuff or nonviolent crimes. And also it created a nasty precedent around the world for what you should be doing to somebody getting involved in Bitcoin transactions. I can see how other governments will look at it and say, oh, so look at what the Americans have done. And they are like the pinnacle of freedom and individual liberty. No, I agree, man. Ross Ulbrich uh, got a bad rap. He's, uh, I'm all for that. That's, that's a good cause. Okay. So thank you very much for this. And I hope we get to do this again maybe sometime. Yeah, sounds good, man. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking, and, and for sure, we should uh, do this again. Also, how can people follow you on Twitter? The last question. Uh, easiest way to find me is uh, TruthRaiderHQ on Twitter or TruthRaider on Telegram, if you want to talk on that uh, app. Okay, Mr. TruthRaider. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, bud. Bye. See you later.